Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and this is our Internet congregation of B'nai Shalom. Thank you for inviting us into your home, and uh, we're happy to be here to share the service with you. Let me uh, cover a couple of quick announcements. Obviously, this is Thanksgiving weekend. I trust that you and your family have come together and had a good time together. Um, couple of things that we want you to be aware of. Next month, December 15th through the 17th, we'll be holding our first Hanukkah conference here in the Norman area. And Hebraic Family Fellowship, the con- local congregation, is going to share their facility with us in Lionel Lamb. We'll put on a Han- Hanukkah conference there. We have about 60 seats left. Uh, for you to come, they'll be a part of that facility. So if you're thinking about coming, please register as soon as you can, and we'll be glad to have you. And we we'll look forward to bringing our Hanukkahs and enjoying Hanukkah together. Uh, we also want you to check your email box. We've sent an end of the year letter out, sharing about the status of the ministry, and uh, to tell you the truth, it's also to ask if you would share a gift with us. This is the gift giving season of the end of the year, and if you would share a special gift with the Lord, it would be very much appreciated, and we will definitely put it to good use. All right, uh, without any further ado, let's uh, go to Kiddush and enjoy our Sabbath. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Sanctified us by His commandments and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now, Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's bless our wives. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us wonderful wives of Proverbs. And Lord, I pray, thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her as she rises while it's yet night to see about the ways of our household. And I pray that you would bless her and encourage her and strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful blessing she is. I pray that you bless her with your very best blessing and that you would encourage her and strengthen her in all things. And that I confess that I love my wife. So we thank you, Lord, for our wives. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Now let's bless our sons. our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance and grant you peace. like Ruth and like Esther. May the Lord with you ever be. May he bring you home unto the land prepared for thee. May God bless you and grant you long life. who will care for you. May the Lord protect and defend you. May His Spirit fill you with grace. May our family grow in happiness. So hear our Sabbath prayer. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.
Bahu et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Michmocha Baelim Adonai. Michmocha Nedahar Bachodesh. No rotechilot, oh sefele, oh sefele. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'alam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach Yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Israel et ha'shabat, la'asot et ha'shabat l'adortam b'rit olam. Bene Avayom, Bene Israel, Othit Leolam, Keshashet Yamim Asadonai, Et Hashemayim, Vayet Haaretz Avayom Hashvi'i Shavat, Vayinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Leolam Vayed Yeshua Hamashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha u'v'chol nashicha, u'v'chol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'aleh a'asher nechim e'zavcha, ha'yom alevavcha. V'shinantam l'avanecha, v'tepardabam p'shivtecha, v'yetecha, u'v'lechtecha, v'derechu shakbika, u'v'kumika. Ukershatam la ota yadecha, veheyu la totvo binenecha, uketatama mazuzo petecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might.
And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
right? As we read at the end of uh, last week's Torah portion, as Jacob uh, had the birthright sold to him for the uh, pot of stew, much, hopefully it was some good stew, you know, pay such a hefty price. Uh, so Jacob gets the birthright, and then later pulls, pulls one over, right? Pretends to be uh, Esau and gets the blessing uh, from his father. Now, as we read at the very end, Esau is livid. He is mad. He is upset. And he says, the, the days of my father are drawing near, and when he passes away, I am planning to kill my brother Jacob. Word gets back, and uh, Jacob's mom says, hey, you need to get out of town. So that's what we're dealing with with this journey. Now, before Jacob goes and before this tour portion begins, uh, Isaac actually brings Jacob to him again. This is after he had gotten the blessing dressed up as Esau. This is after all that is said and done. Isaac calls Jacob to him one more time to, to give him another blessing before he goes. And I believe this is much more in line with the uh, birthright that was sold to him. I believe the birthright and the blessing are kind of separate things. But we read in Genesis chapter 28, starting with verse 3. You'll turn with me there. It says this. Isaac says to Jacob, he says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. I think this is the birthright. Right? The blessing that we saw in last week's Torah portion was being prosperous, the land, you know, being fruitful, you, you having a bounty of the land and rain and all these things. But this blessing is, may you follow in the footsteps of Abraham. May the blessing that God gave to Abraham also be passed on to you. The inheritance of the land, becoming a great nation, all these things. And so this week, we're going to be talking about God being with Jacob. God being with Jacob. Now Jacob is headed to Haran. Haran, remember, is, is, is kind of that place where Abraham stopped along the way and where he, he called Abraham out and said, leave your father's household, come to the land that I'm going to show you. Now, contrary to what you might think, it wasn't a direct path from right, Ur, from Babylon, straight to the land of Israel. Instead, they traveled up where the river was and came back down. So this place, uh, Haran, is going to be in the kingdom of Haran, which is in modern-day kind of Syria area, is where you're looking at, up north. Okay, so, so that is where uh, he's going. Aram is where uh, Aramaic actually comes from, language of Aramaic. Um, Aram uh, was conquered by the uh, Assyrian Empire and was incorporated into them. So that's kind of the setting of this. Now let's read the first chunk of this week's Torah portion, starting with verse 10 in Genesis chapter 28. And he says this, Now Jacob went out from Be'er Sheva, and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this has to be 
comforting. This has to be encouraging. Jacob has gone through a lot recently with the whole birthright dilemma, with the whole blessing dilemma. And it's one thing to have your father bless you. It's another thing to have your mother on your side. But when God comes and visits you and says, Hey, I'm the God of your fathers. And I am with you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will be uh, with your descendants and multiply them. That's, that's got to feel good. That's got to feel comforting for Jacob. We continue with verse 15. Behold, and pay, pay attention to this, this verse right here. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone uh, that he had put in his head. He set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of that place Bethel, or in Hebrew, Beit El, which means house of God. But the name of the city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now from this passage... Uh, the, the teaching is that this was the same place where the temple would be built. Right? Where Jacob said, I will build a house to the Lord and I will give a tithe from this place. The, the traditional teaching is that, so this was Jerusalem. This was the place where the temple would be built in the future. That's why there was such an incredible revelation of God there. That's why we have this image of a ladder and this connection between heaven and earth joining together. And I, I, I like that tradition. That's beautiful. I think that's a great teaching. Um, but I think it misses a key point in which Jacob says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And how God emphasizes to him, I will be with you until you come back. I will be with you wherever you go, and I will not leave you. See, in the scripture, we kind of have two contradicting voices on the presence of God. One is much more in line with the way of thinking of, of the ancient Near East and these nations. Uh, in the ancient Near East, the gods were tribal gods. They were territorial gods. You had the god of this land, right? the god of this mountain, the god of this tree, the god of this area. Each area had its gods, and God could only be found in that area. That was, that was a common way of thinking, and we see kind of hints of that throughout the scripture. And I want it to be clear that in this passage, even though this might be the future location of, of the temple, of the place where heaven and earth meet, that's not to say that Jerusalem is, is the, the only place you go to find the presence of the Lord and that he can't be found outside of that. Because as we know, our God is greater than all other gods. Right? Our, our God is, is greater than these gods that these people surrounding had. They had territorial gods, they had tribal gods, but we know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the whole earth is his footstool. Heaven is his throne. Where can you go where God is not there? So I think the, the much more um, uh, interesting message that we take away from this is where Jacob says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't even realize it. Because see, many times in our expectations of God, we want to find him in places where we think, yeah, this is where God is going to be found, whether it's a congregation, right? 
whether it's at the appointed feast, whether it's if we take a trip to the land of Israel. But oftentimes, God is right there in the places we would expect to find him the least. On some dirt floor with a stone set up as your pillow. Right? Or with Esther in Persia. Or with the children of Israel in Babylon. He was with Abraham. Abraham as he was in Haran. And he met with Abraham at the trees of Mamre. Right? He was with Isaac. He was with Moses on a bush on some hill in, in Saudi Arabia. God is not limited to one space at one time. But we know that he can be found um, with us in places we wouldn't even expect to find him. He, he tends to meet the patriarchs where they're at. And so I want to go with a passage that kind of re- reinforces this idea. And that's in Psalm and chapter 139. Psalm 139 very beautifully uh, paints this idea that God is not some tribal, territorial God that can only be found if you're in this location at this specific time. But rather he is there, he is present wherever circumstance you might find yourself. And this is a really famous popular psalm. I'm sure you've heard it many times before. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven... What does it say? You are there. If I make my bed in in Sheol or the grave, behold, you are there. If I take uh, the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God is there. God is there when we are at home. God is there when we are far off in exile. God is there when we're in the congregation, when we're keeping the feast, right? when we're in Jerusalem. But God is also there in the midst of exile and turmoil and trouble. That's comforting. That's the comfort that Jacob has. Even in the midst of exile, he hears. Isn't it so beautiful when, you know, uh, a few Torah portions later, when we finally come to the book of Exodus, we see the children of Israel groaning and crying in the land of Egypt, and God comes down and he says, I have heard your cry, and I have come down to bring you out. Right? They didn't have to first go to the promised land to have that interaction with God. God came to them. And that's beautiful. Um, there's this idea in Scripture that exile is death. That separation from the presence of God is, is death, is exile. When we read in Genesis chapter 2, all right, verse 15, in the garden, where he says, uh, The Lord took man, put him in the garden of Eden to tend to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Many people are perplexed by that passage and say, Well, what does that mean? Because obviously, when they t- took and ate of the fruit, what happened? They, they didn't die. Uh, one popular interpretation is, well, uh, I, I tell you, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. As in, once you eat of it, then death is kind of set into right motion, sin and death enter the world, and eventually you're going to die. Or some people will say, well, days is a thousand years, and so, you know, they didn't obviously live more than that day in that way of thinking. But many, many biblical scholars uh, actually paint this picture that this is in reference to Israel. That the story of Adam and Eve... And their exile from the garden 
beautifully foreshadows and patterns Israel's exile out of the promised land. That just like God had this beautiful paradise, the land of Canaan, right, is described as what? Land flowing with milk and honey, abundant and beautiful. Uh, that just as he places the man in the garden, he brings Israel and places him in the promised land to tend and to keep it. God gives Adam and Eve the commandment, right? Don't do this. Uh, God gives Israel the commandments. Do this and you'll have life. Do this and you'll have cursings. Uh, both disobey. One is exiled from the garden. One is exiled from the promised land. And that's, that's a beautiful interpretation. As we know, our Father loves these patterns, right? What happened in the forefathers, what happened to the children. History constantly repeating itself. But in this parallel, then, death becomes what? Exile. And this is something where if you go and you study and you search this theme throughout Scripture, this is there all over the place. One example, the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel, right? What is, what is the Valley of Dry Bones talking about? But Israel's exile and the end of that exile. But it uses the imagery of what? A, a valley a, a valley that's basically a tomb, a valley of dry bones, a, a valley full of death, and then the dead coming back to life. And so in the scripture, it's very common that death and exile are interchangeable. But the scariest thing about exile is not where you are geographically. What's scary about leaving the garden? What's scary about being cast out from the promised land? What's scary about you know, being kicked out of the temple? Being away from the presence of God. Because in the presence of God, we have life and blessing and goodness. But away from the presence of God, we have, so to speak, death. Not, not necessarily a physical death, but a death of the spirit, right? A death of the soul. Uh, separation from God is chaos and disorder and destruction. That's where sin and, and all these things live. But in the presence of God is where we have life and life abundant, joy, goodness. This is something we have to understand. Now you see hints of um, this idea of being out of the land being um, conjoined with being away from the presence of God. One, for example, is Daniel. Right When Daniel's in Babylon, we notice that he prays towards the temple. He prays towards Jerusalem. And this, this kind of goes off of uh, what Solomon said in his uh, inauguration prayer of the temple. Right When Solomon finally had completed the temple and they had their inauguration ceremony, Solomon says, you know, whoever prays towards this place and looks to here... Um, you know, may their prayers be heard come up to. So we see Daniel in exile in Babylon praying, looking to the east. We still have this tradition today, right? When we do the Shema, our various blessings, we will face east, face Jerusalem, um, going after this, this tradition, which is really beautiful. Other times you see this in the Psalms. You know, you see in, in some of the Psalms, David laments about being, right, away from the house of God and in exile. And there's this tone of being separated of God not, not as much hearing the prayers because we're in exile, because we're away from the house of God. But I want to emphasize again, what does God say? What house can you build for me? For heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Uh, which is just so beautiful, so beautiful. So Jacob goes and he's in Haran. And I'm not going to be zooming in on this uh, part of the Torah portion so much, but a lot of interesting things happen. Uh, Jacob marries who he thinks, right, is, is uh, uh, Rebecca, or uh, excuse me, um, uh, uh, Rachel. He ends up getting Leah, right? 
kind of duped, pulled one over on him. Uh, then he marries Rachel, and this happens, which is actually a good thing we find out, because Leah actually is the, the mother of you know, Judah and Levi, some of the most important tribes. And the tribes of Israel there are born in his exile. Interesting, as we see that Israel as well will be ultimately born in exile in Egypt. Um, and all these things happen, but God seems to be with Jacob, blessing him with the various flocks and things. We see that Laban is, is a real trickster, is really out to get Jacob, is really unfair in his business dealings. And one of the things we see is he's constantly changing the terms of what Jacob gets to keep the flocks, right? And, and we see how, how God kind of directs Jacob. He, he does some odd tricks, you know, with, with the birthing of, of these flocks. But God blesses, blesses him, oh my gosh, crazy abundantly. Just like he did with Abraham, just like we did, he did with Isaac. Now, when it comes time, finally, all the, all the, uh, you know, all the way down to Joseph is born, and Jacob's getting ready to leave and go back home. When we look in chapter 31, starting with verse 3, the Lord says to Jacob, Return the land, to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field, to his flock, and said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable toward me as before. Right? Jacob's gone above and beyond to make Laban happy. Jacob has gone with all of Laban's demands, and still Laban is jealous of the blessing of God upon Jacob, that every time he switches the terms, no, you'll get these types of sheep. No, you'll get the ones with stripes. No, the ones with dots. No, the ones with defects. Every time he switches the terms, God blesses the ones that belong to Jacob. So he says, uh, your father, he, he's, his countenance toward me is not very favorable, but the God of my father has been with me. See, what Jacob realizes very indirectly is that even though God there in Haran isn't very much present uh, in the story as being mentioned, being there with Jacob, Jacob comes to the realization, no, God has actually been with me the whole time, just as he promised before I came here. We see kind of the same principle with the book of Esther each year, right, when we read Esther. Esther is a unique book in that God's name doesn't even appear once in the book. And it doesn't say, you know, the Lord did this and the Lord orchestrated this. But we see through the events that God was behind the scenes working, orchestrating, planning the path. Or we didn't even realize it, ordering the steps. Same thing happens here with Jacob. Jacob comes to this realization that, no, God has been the one who's been guiding me this whole time. Um, The same God who met Abraham in Haran, who met him by the trees of Mamre, who was with him when he was exiled into Egypt, and the same with Isaac. The same God who was with Isaac wherever he went. The same God who would later meet Moses, right, at a bush on some mountain in Saudi Arabia, is the same God who came down to be with us, and meet with us, and not leave us abandoned and orphaned. Think about that for a second. When we have these two competing ideas of God, One, that God has a temple, that God has a house, which is true and good. But when we start adopting the pagan idea of God from the ancient Near East, that God is in a specific territory and place and can only be met in that place, we start thinking, you know, well, how do I get there? Well, how, how, what do I have to do first before I can have the presence of God? How do I have to, you know, clean myself up for, uh, first before I go and get to the presence of God? But one thing we find beautiful in the story of Messiah, in the story of Yeshua, is that God actually comes down and takes us and meets us where we're at, just like he did in Egypt, and then cleans us up and brings us 
to himself. How beautiful that is. How amazing our God is. You know, God met Abraham and said, come to the land that I'm going to show you. God met the children of Israel and said, come to the land that I'm going to show right to you. And God came down to us and said, come to the land that I will show you, which is exciting. Yeshua, in the book of Matthew, in chapter 28, in verse 18, the very last piece of the book of Matthew, uh, it says this, uh, Yeshua uh, came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, uh, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the commandments that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The same verbiage that God gives to Jacob as he he prepares to go out, right? I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to make sure I bring you back. I'm not sending you for no reason. I'm going to make sure I accomplish my promises with what, what I'm having you do is what Yeshua tells his disciples, what Yeshua tells us. I'm going to be going away. I'm not going to be visible and present with you and tangible at all times, but I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. I ask you guys, are, are we at the end of the age quite yet? We're maybe getting there, but no, that hasn't come. So is Yeshua still with us? Yeah, to, even to the end of the age, he says, right? It's not like, well, I don't know, after 1,500 years, I mean, that's kind of a long time. I think it's worn off by now, right? No, no, no. To the end of the age, I will even be with you. He says it beautifully in a different way in John chapter 14, starting with verse 15. Yeshua says this, it's a beautiful passage. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, that, uh, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. See, something's, something's really beautiful and profound that we learn through Jacob's exile. That we learn through our exile. I know many of us are longing for the end of the exile, right? Anyone else, right? I know I'm longing for the end of the exile. I've only been to Israel once, but man, you know, almost not a day goes by where, it's, oh man, I can't wait for the kingdom of God. I can't wait for the end of the exile. But there's good news. And then even though we're in exile, we're not in exile. Even though we're in exile physically, spiritually, the end of the exile has come. Which is what Moses prophesied at the, end, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, right? Was that first spiritually the exile would end, and then physically. Wasn't it the same with the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel? First spiritually, right, there, there is this resurrection, and then the skin and the flesh and, and the physical is put on. You see, spiritually, the exile is over. It ended with the Messiah. The exile from the presence of God. The exile from the favor of God. The exile from being with God. When Messiah came and wiped away what separated us, that's when the end of the exile began, spiritually. 
and we know that what he began, he's going to finish. So I take comfort in that. I take comfort in knowing that just as God was with Abraham, was with Isaac, was with Jacob, in fact, he calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? He's the God of Chris, he's the God of Joe, he's the God of Monty, he's the God of Ephraim, he's the God of, you know, Sarah, he's the, he's, he is our God, and he is with us. And though we may not be in Jerusalem, and though a temple may not be set up, he's with us even in exile. And that gives us comfort knowing he will accomplish what he's meant to accomplish. The bigger exile is over. Now we just wait for the reality of the kingdom of God to continue to manifest in the physical world, as we hope to see soon and in our days. That's uh, what really stood out to me in this week's Torah portion and encouraged me. I hope that could be uh, an encouragement and blessing to you all. Uh, So let's go ahead and close with some prayer. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the examples of the patriarchs. That you give us these uh, examples that we can know that just as you were with our fathers, you are with us. That we can see both the uh, goodness and the badness, right? That we see both the blessing and the cursing. We see even the mistakes that your servants made. And we know that just as you were able to work with humans then, you were able to work with us humans now. Thank you for giving us hope. Thank you for giving us comfort and peace, knowing that when we are humble and we follow you, we put our faith and trust in you, and we obey your word, that you do the impossible, that you give us life, that you give us blessing. God, thank you for your Torah. Place it within us, seal it within us, that as we go... Uh, away from the Shabbat later, that even in the week, even at our workplace, even with our family, you would, you would have your truth deeply planted within us, that we may be a light to all those who are around us. Thank you for this in the name of our Messiah, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom, everyone. Thank you, Chris, for sharing the Torah portion with us this week. Ephraim is on vacation with his family this uh, Thanksgiving weekend, and so we're glad Chris was able to come and share that with you. If I could, I'd like to go back to the Torah portion just for a moment uh, to bring out something that specifically is in there that leads into the New Testament portion that I want to share with you. So back to Genesis chapter 28, um, where it talks about um, Jacob first seeing the ladder. Uh, And in verse 13 of chapter 28, it says, And behold, the Lord stood, and my version says, above it, and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, uh, Father Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. The English struggles here a little bit in translating the Hebrew. In fact, as I read to you, it says the Lord stood above it. It is a neuter gender, and you would think a ladder is an inanimate object. It doesn't have a male or female gender. Um, But in truth of fact, in the Hebrew, this is what it says. It says, and... um, There at verse, it says, Behold, the Lord stood, are you ready for it? Beside him. 
the Lord stood beside him is actually in the Hebrew what it says there. The word with the word him, which is the male gender, it's saying it's a person. It's not just an inanimate object. The Lord was standing beside someone. He was standing beside someone that Jacob saw was a ladder. That's the way he described it. Uh, that something was reaching up into heaven down to the earth and, and this was working this way. But, but the scripture, and Moses reads to it, as he was standing beside him that was doing that. The reason why uh, I wanted to point that out is because when we get to the New Testament portion, which is in John chapter 1, uh, the key verse that we're going to reference to here is at the end of the chapter, verse 51, and in which that Yeshua is responding to Nathaniel, and he says, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, I'm going to take you through this part, the bulk of this chapter, because it's the statements being made to the initial disciples here is profound to get to this point. Yeshua is saying he's the latter. He's saying he's the person that the angels are sending and descending upon from heaven to earth. And so he's directly saying, I'm Jacob's ladder. Very specifically here. So let me back up a little bit because I do want to give you a little more context of how we come to this. Chapter 1. <clears throat> the first part of John chapter 1, we've already covered in some previous teachings about John uh, is expressing, the disciple John is expressing how the Lord was from the beginning, that he was the creator, and that he became flesh, and he came and dwelt among us, and he came to do the work of redemption, which is what the Messiah is supposed to do. And then we're introduced to John the Baptist. And as you recall, John the Baptist, he's out in the wilderness. He's preaching the baptism of repentance. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let me give just a little bit more definition to it. In the kingdom of God, there are three things that make up the kingdom. First of all, there's a king. If you don't have a king, you don't have a kingdom. <laughs> okay. Number two, there has to be servants to the king. And the, the kingdom is great by the number of servants that it has. If it's a small kingdom, small number of servants, a great king, great number of servants. And then the third component is the land. There has to be a land where the kingdom is at and is administered, where the servants live, where the king lives at this same place to it. Throughout Scripture, um, we have moments where we hear about the king, but we don't have the land. We have moments where we have the land, we have the king, but we don't have all the servants yet. And until we came to the time of King David, which he then conquered all of the land that was spoken of in the promise, and of course there were many servants, in fact David got in trouble trying to number the number of them, and of course the Messiah is going to be the son of David, that's about as close as we ever got to the kingdom, you know, having all the components all come together. Well, here's John telling them, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So what he's really saying is, hey, the missing component, we're, we're pulling all the components together. We're going to have the servants together. We're going to be in the land together, and the king's going to come. 
the king is going to be coming. And so they're calling upon them to repent and to take this mikvah bath, which is, by the way, the exact same thing that happened uh, when, when God came down on the mountain and told Moses, told the children of Israel, take a bath and then I'm going to come and I will speak to you. So he's prepping the people just like Moses prepped the people to hear God come down on Mount Sinai. He's prepping the people to get ready for the Messiah to come. The Messiah, the king, is going to come very surely to it. And as you recall, uh, the, uh, the Messiah did show up. He walked out there and God had given him a sign, John, a sign that the one who's coming, that the sign would be to him that a dove would land upon his shoulder and remain. And so that, when John saw that, and that's what the Lord had told him, he knew that was the one. He didn't know beforehand who it was going to be, even though he's a distant cousin of Yeshua of Nazareth. He didn't know he was going to be the one. He just is out there following what the Lord has told him to do and preaching repentance, and he's got a following. He's got a number of disciples out there. And in this chapter, once John the Baptist introduces Yeshua as the Lamb of God, and he gives a testimony as to why he knows he is, all of a sudden we're going to be introduced to a series of disciples. Let me tell you who we're being introduced to. John, who wrote the gospel, he's, he's obviously there, and we're going to get introduced to um, Philip and Nathaniel, and we're going to get introduced to Andrew and Peter. And those five men are going to be the first men to begin to follow Yeshua. Now, I want to walk you through just a little bit uh, this sequence of events, and then I'm going to pr- uh, show you why did John so profoundly present this information to us, because it is... Very impressive, uh, you know, as, as we look at the co- constitute the reasons why each one is believing. Because uh, that's really what this gets down to, is why believe they found the Messiah. So let me read for you, begin reading for you. Um, verse 29 of chapter 1. The next day he saw Yeshua coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By calling him the Lamb of God, he's making reference to Abraham's promise. Abraham had promised Isaac that the Lord would provide the Lamb for himself in that place. That the sacrifice of redemption would not be brought by man. That God himself would bring the sacrifice. That God himself would be, he would provide for himself to come and to be the sacrifice. So when John makes this announcement, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that does the work of redemption. That's a very profound statement to be made, very bold statement. I'm certain that the people who were there with him and listening to his previous teaching were probably like, what? I mean, it was, the, it was that profound as to what was being expressed. Verse 30, then this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So he's making reference, he's the creator. Okay, he's before me. Uh, 
Verse 31, and I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water, and John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. John is saying, God gave me a sign and said, when I see the dove land on this man and remain on him, that's the one. That's the one that you're foretelling about. That's the one you're, you're laying the path out for. Verse 33, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said, oh, well, I've said that verse. Verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Because he was looking for the Son of God. He's looked, and at this point, <clears throat> John <clears throat> is equating that the title Son of God has to do with being the Lamb of God. They're linked. They're not a separate title. I've heard a lot of uh, uh, believers get confused about this title, the Son of God. <clears throat> and, in fact, I've heard some arguments trying to deny his deity by suggesting that if you're the Son of, then you're not really the same as. You know, that God the Father, he's God, and if you're the son of, well, you know, and besides that, aren't we all called sons of God? I mean, you know, but, you know, and that, they try to make that argument. But if you take in context what's being said here in John, I can give you three points. Number one, uh, John was foretold that this is the one the Spirit of God is going to descend upon. Number two, he says that um, he's the promise that Abraham made. And number three, he existed before I existed. This is the, and then he says, this is the Son of God. The Son of God is the person who's existed before others. The Son of God is the Lamb of God. Okay? He's, he's pulling all of those previous promises, all of those previous definitions together into one Messiah, and it referring to him as the Son of God. Now, I can assure you, I, I loosely use the title, I'm one of the sons of God too, just, just like you, I'm, I belong to the Lord, and so I'm in his family. I'm male gender, so I would be a son of God. You know? But I didn't exist before you people did. And by the way, it is not my job to bring and do redemption for you. I am not the Lamb of God. Okay? So, but, but I still am part of that family. And so he gives him this title that he's the son of God. Now let me tell you, how this was regarded by the men that are there, these, these men. They suddenly have enough information to say and to believe we just found the Messiah. Now, that's an interesting observation on their part, because I'm going to ask you a fundamental question. Why in the world did they believe they just found the Messiah when Yeshua hasn't done a single miracle and hasn't even spoken yet? Why in the world do they believe that they found the Messiah? Because let's follow here what it says here. Verse 38. Oh, let me back up here just for a moment. Uh, verse 37. And two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Yeshua. There's two disciples besides John. Verse 38. Yeshua turned and beheld them following and said, What do you seek? And they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he said, Come, and you will see. And they came, therefore, and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, which means pretty late in the day. And the one who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, 
Simon Peter's brother. And he found first his own brother Simon, and he said, We have found the Messiah. That's a pretty profound statement. That you're in Israel, and there's this great expectation the Messiah is going to be coming one day, and all of a sudden your brother comes walking in the house, and he says to you, We found him. That would be attention-getting. All right? And so that's the way Peter hears about it. And Peter comes immediately with Andrew. Verse 42, And he brought him to Yeshua, and Yeshua looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means you should be called the rock. Now we say Peter, you know, Peter in the, in the English, and so, but it means the rock. I'm going to call you the rock. Now that's interesting because there's a, a degree of camaraderie there. I don't know if you had friends uh, earlier in your life when you were ever in an opportunity where you had a group of friends. And a, a lot of times when a group of friends will come together, like if you're in the military and there's a group in the same unit, you'll give each other nicknames. When I was growing up, um, and my friends that I ran around with, and there was there was six of us guys in our senior year that we did a lot of things together. And, and my name's Monty, and <clears throat> they added to my name, and they called me Montague. You know, when they'd say Montague, you know. Well, actually, they shortened it up, and they just started calling me Goo. Hey, hey Goo, you know. <laughs> and that was my nickname, you see. You know, it's, that's not part of my name at all, but that was the name they gave me. And this is a natural thing that happens when you begin to make connection, when you begin to make where you're, you're connected with one another. And here comes Peter, and he wants to be connected to the Messiah. He's being introduced. And the first thing Yeshua says, oh, by the way, I know who you are. However, I'm going to call you <laughs> Kind of interesting, you know, and, and there's a bond that begins to form there immediately. And I think the reason why he did that was because Peter, as you know, became the de facto leaders of the other brethren, even before he knew it, even before the other brethren. And it was like, I'm going to make you a rock. You're going to be steadfast. Others are going to lean on you and rely on you, is basically what he was saying to him. Um, verse 40, or let me go to verse um, um Let's go to verse 43. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee. So mind you, we come from the lower Jordan Valley, which is east of Jerusalem, and our way up into Galilee. And he found Philip. And Yeshua said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida. Where's Bethsaida? It's way up on the north side of the Galilee, of the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Now, before we go any further, let's cover what he just said. Now, Andrew said to his brother, We have found the Messiah. Philip says, and he adds to this, we have found him spoken of by Moses and the prophets. What is he referring to? He's referring to the Lamb of God that was promised by, by Abraham. That's part of, the, part of the law and the prophets. 
And the prophets all go into that he'll be the redeemer and that he will be of the son of David. You know, the prophet's going to give us a whole lot of information about what the Messiah is going to do and how he's going to do it and things like that. And so he comes in with a profound testimony. We have found him spoken of by Moses and the prophets. Okay, we're talking about why these men are believing in Yeshua. Time out. Let me ask you a question. How many people believe in the Messiah and they skip the Moses and the prophets part? Let me tell you something. I'm not sure you really know who Yeshua of Nazareth is if you don't first believe Moses. And by the way, Yeshua specifically said that. Had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe the words of Moses, how will you believe my words? How will you understand what I'm saying and doing? There's a very powerful connection between Moses and the prophets and the basis of belief for the Messiah. And what it comes down to is this. What are we actually believing? We're believing promises from God. We're believing that God said this is what was going to happen, and we believe that it has happened. We believe that God promised us the Messiah to come, and now we're walking with the Messiah, watching and seeing how he's going to fulfill the other prophecies and how he's going to be the answer to the promise. Okay? And they're starting with that. And here is Philip telling him, we found him that is spoken by the Moses and the prophets, and we're getting ready to see him fulfill the words of Moses and the prophets. Now, when he said he's a Yeshua of Nazareth, immediately the next question is, wait a minute, and, and Nathaniel has been studying the scripture, and he's going, Nazareth? I don't, I don't remember anything in Moses or the prophets about Nazareth. And in fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the opening uh, verses and chapters, it makes the statement about Yeshua of Nazareth and how that this is the fulfillment of the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, Nathaniel says, I don't know of any prophecies about the Nazarene. Matthew says, yes, there are prophecies about the Nazarene and so forth. So are there prophecies that call out the Messiah to be the Nazarene? You know what? You can go into all the Torah you want. You will not find the word Nazareth or Nazarene anywhere in Moses and the prophets. You won't find it. So what in the world was Matthew talking about? And now we understand the nature of the question that Nathaniel's been asking. I don't remember anything about Nazareth. What the answer is, let me give you, that's a completely separate teaching, but let me give you the quick answer here. It goes back to Isaiah 53. The promise that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. He would be despised of men. He would be looked down upon. He would be treated with disdain. See, that was the cultural understanding of the city of Nazareth. If you were coming from the city of Nazareth, I'll give you the exact words of what rabbis say. They call it backwater Nazareth. That's, that's their phrase. The backwater Nazareth. 
you know, backwater is a term which means that's not the running water. That would be the sewer water. That's the backwater. Okay? Um, and that they looked down upon anybody that came from that. There was, there was you, you best not mention that you're from Nazareth if you are going to Jerusalem. You know what I'm saying? Okay, just don't even mention it. Uh, because they'll hold you in, in disdain and contempt just for that alone. Here, that's where Yeshua decided to come from. By the way, he lived in Capernaum when he did his ministry and down into Jerusalem and so forth, but he chose the title to be called Yeshua of Nazareth. He chose it from the beginning of his ministry. Well, you will refer to me, you refer to me as Yeshua from Nazareth. And even after his resurrection, we give testimony that he's Yeshua of Nazareth. Not Yeshua of Capernaum. Not Yeshua of Cana. You know, not Yeshua of, of Samaria. Not Yeshua of, of Israel. No, Yeshua of Nazareth. And the contrast is tremendous here. It's a very negative term. Yet Yeshua is demonstrating how much he humbled himself. So that when he would come and do the work of redemption, he does it for the lowliest person. The person you would say, oh, forget him. He says, no, I'm coming for him too. I'm coming for those that are rejected by others. Rejected by the world and by other men. I'm, I'm coming to redeem them. And I'm with them. So, that's the reason why Nathaniel posed this question. Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, what, what is that? I mean, that's the last thing you would hear that the Messiah would come from. So, then it goes on to say that, uh, verse 47, Then Yeshua saw that Nathaniel <clears throat> coming to him. By the way, let me give you the definition of Nathaniel. Nathaniel means the gift of our God. And by the way, one of the things about the Messiah is he's a gift from God. That our salvation is a gift from God. And here's Nathaniel. His name represents the very concept of the giving of the Messiah to us. Coming to him and he said, this is what Yeshua said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Now that's quite a compliment to give to a, a spiritual person that you would see a spiritual person walk up and you say, there is, no, there is no sin, no iniquity, no transgression in your life. You are righteous and walking upright in the light. Can, if, if somebody saw you and they pronounced that over you, what, what would you think? What is wrong with you? I mean, how in the world do you, you don't know me. I mean, how do you know me? You know, it's like the same thing as if you were to go to and then curse someone out. You, you would The feeling would be, you don't know me. You know, you're an heir. You're making a mistake. Well, in this case, Yeshua spoke very complimentary of him. And he's going, I don't know if I can deal with all of that. I can't reconcile all of that. I, you know, and so he's, he's shocked by the title that Yeshua gives to him. And he says, <clears throat> he says um, how do you know me? And before, and he says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Apparently, Nathaniel had been cool in his heels. 
waiting for Philip to show up. I don't know how they communicated, but but Nathaniel was where he was supposed to be, and Philip was coming to get him, and he was going to bring him. And, and apparently the rendezvous point was Nathaniel's cooling his heels under a fig tree. By the way, let me just go a step further here. If you go to Israel, and I've done this before, if you go to Israel, the days get very warm in the daytime. The sun, radiant sun and, and heat and so forth. And if you're ever in an area where there's some fig trees, and I've been in some areas where there was a lone fig tree. And I remember the, the first time I saw that, we had, the bus had stopped and we had this little thing for the folks and they were under a pavilion. But I saw this one fig tree out there and I went ahead and I walked on out to it. It was gorgeous. The, the, the tree branches come up about head high on, on a guy. I'm an average size guy. And they spread out and the leaves are big and they produce tremendous shade. It's one of the most gorgeous shade trees that you can possibly be under. And it's almost like you're in a little hut, you know, kind of thing. And the breeze is blowing and it circulates underneath and so the breeze blows under the normal breeze is there in Israel. So you're sitting there, you're in the shade, and it's just like this most pleasant breeze. And I found myself that when I went to Israel and got a chance to get under a fig tree, immediately, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you the truth, immediately it was so pleasant, I started having conversation with God. Now, I was not doing it because I had read this for, I was just, I was taken by the pleasantness of this moment, and so I began to thank God and just have a little short conversation with God. So when I read about Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree and something going on with him between him and the Lord, I don't have any difficulty understanding this whatsoever at all, because I've experienced that myself. And so he's down there, and he's just having a private conversation with God. And apparently something very personal and very intimate for Nathaniel is taking place. So when he comes to Yeshua, and Yeshua says to him, you know, I saw you when you were under the tree. You know, you, you know what that, that is. For Nathaniel, that's like God just spoke back to, into his conversation. I see you, Nathaniel. I know where you're at. I know what's in your heart. I know what you're thinking about. I know what you're concerned about. I saw you. I saw you under the tree. For Nathaniel, it is none else than God had seen him under the tree. Something happened between Nathaniel and God that, you know, he just met God and he just acknowledged him. Verse 50, Yeshua answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater than these. Now, one of the things that I love about this question, do, for this reason you believe, is the experience that Nathaniel had, is that a basis for faith that this is Yeshua the Messiah? For him, it is. For us, you and me, is it a basis for us to believe that this is the Messiah? No. We don't know what Nathaniel was thinking. All we have is his testimony. That's great for you, Nathaniel. What about me? How am I supposed to believe? And this is what 
Yeshua proceeds to start doing with his disciples. You remember, uh, we had Andrew said, we found the Messiah. We got Philip saying, we have found him spoken of by Moses and the prophets. These guys believe. Why do they believe? Let me go back to my original question before. Yeshua hasn't, hasn't really spoken, hasn't really taught, and has not done any miracles yet. Why do they believe they found the Messiah? There is another reason there that's given in this chapter that I haven't pointed out to you. And this is the basis for why they all began to start. It has to do with John the Baptist. The prophecies that he would be the forefronter, that he would say, make smooth the path, repent for the kingdom of God is hand. He's going to announce the king. He's going to tell him, smooth the path out for him. He's coming. What is it and how did he do that? Well, John the Baptist, a lot of people forget, especially Christians, he was a priest. He was a Levite priest. And according to Moses and the prophets, according to the temple ritual, no sacrifice can come in to be presented before God except that it be approved by a Levite priest. See, I'm a man, I'm going to the temple today, and I have a lamb. And I'm going to go do a Thanksgiving offering. And when I go into the temple, well, the first thing that happens is the priest has to examine the lamb, make sure it's good. No blemish, no sickness, not blind, whatever. Make sure it's a fully qualified lamb that belongs to me. I didn't find it. It belongs to me. Um, and then he approves it. And at that moment, then it becomes a sacrifice to God. While I was carrying it there, it's not a sacrifice yet. It's just a lamb. But the law says, unless a priest certifies that this is a sacrifice, it's not one. What they heard was a Levite priest just satisfied the requirements of the law and just declared that is the acceptable sacrifice. So from this moment forward, when he is going to be sacrificed, the Levite priest has already approved it, ready for sacrifice. And that's the other work of the Messiah. And they knew then he would be the Lamb of God, that he would be the Son of God, that he would be the one that exists before him. He was the one who was going to come and do the work of redemption. He was the one that was going to take our sins away. He was the one who was going to establish the kingdom. He was going to be Messiah King. And last time, Son of God, you are the King of Israel, the last component of the kingdom. We already have the land. We're already the brethren in the land. And all of a sudden, you are the king. Now the kingdom can begin. We're all together, finally, for the first time. So that's a very, very profound statement that's being made. But Yeshua says, so on the basis of that, you believe? Well, that's what they were starting with, but that's not enough to hold them in place. So what follows in the Gospel of John is is the Messiah goes through fulfilling prophecies, giving the evidence to convince us this really is the Messiah. Overwhelming. And in fact, at the end of John, in John chapter 20, John writes this. He said, I have written these things that you might believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah, and believing in him, you might receive the gift of eternal life. The purpose of the book was actually written at the end of the book. 
And that's the reason why from the other Gospels, because they're a narrative of events that took place, whereas John is laying out the proof text for us to believe that Yeshua of Nazareth really is the Messiah. And that's the reason why it's so profound and important for us. Let me just summarize. Uh, well, let me give you the last verse. Truly, truly, I said to you, you shall see the heavens open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Yeshua is clearly saying, I'm the God that's back there in the Old Testament that was back there with the fathers. Now, the Lord, Jacob saw the Lord standing beside him. Who's the him? That was the Messiah. He's the one the angels are descending on. He's right there with God. He's God. He's right there with him. So he comes and he says, you're going to see a whole bunch of other stuff. You're going to see people come out of the grave. You're going to see lepers cleansed. You're going to see people born blind see again. You're going to see people that are born lame. I'm going to heal them. I'm going to deal with all of the religious authorities and teach the Torah the way it was really supposed to be taught. You're going to see a lot. You're going to see evil spirits leaving. You're going to see the evidence of God's Holy Spirit. You're going to see the evidence of the angels. By the way, at my resurrection, you'll get to see some real angels. You're going to see a lot. You know, so he was letting them know they were about to begin a great adventure. And it's the same adventure for us and when we believe in the Messiah. Amen? Shalom, everyone. Have a great Sabbath and have a great weekend. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. <laughs> you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around saying, yes, Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. 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 
from God Just put a smile up on your face He's got the whole world in his hands So obey his commands And you will know peace Shalom